You are listening to the Hill City Church Podcast. Our mission is to become and make disciples who walk with God, connect with people, and impact the world. My name is Josh. I'm the lead pastor here at Hill City Church. I'm so excited. Uh, today we are wrapping up our Multiply teaching series. It's our Christmas series. The content's not Christmassy, but at least we got a nice Christmas tree up there, right? And uh, I've really enjoyed this. This is a teaching series I believe uh, God is going to use in the life of our church to set the vis- vision and direction for the new year. Uh, We started off talking about how God wants to multiply his people to reach the ends of the earth, but we've got to grow the right things. Then we talked about how the kingdom of heaven grows generation after generation, and making disciples really begins at home. And then last week we looked at how the kingdom of heaven grows one person at a time, and how God wants to use you in the lives of people uh, that you have connections with to share the gospel, and today it's all going to come down to one question, okay? You ready for that question? I'll get to it at the end of the sermon, okay? <laughs> one question, one very, very important question that, that at, the, at the end of the sermon we're going to get to, but before we get to that, uh, maybe if you've been joining us for this series, this stuff, these concepts, they sound good, you know? Uh, if, if you make two disciples, and those two disciples make two disciples, there's four disciples, then eight, then 16, then 32, any math people here then? 64, then 128, right? And so you, you go so on and so forth, and eventually, right, that's what we call exponential growth. And that sounds nice, but maybe there's some of you in here who kind of get this, this lingering thought is it even possible, though? Because let's be honest, we haven't exactly experienced that in the American church over the last few decades. In fact, throughout my entire life, the American church has been on the decline. Uh, just looking at the last decade, American Protestants made up 51% of the population in the United States in 2009, and that's dropped to 43% in 2019. And the statistics are similar throughout all the different denominations in the American church. Meanwhile, here's a few other groups that have been growing over that same time period. The group of nuns, which is no religious affiliation, has grown by 5%. Agnostic, someone who's like, I don't, I don't really know what I believe, has grown from 3 to 5%. And atheists in America have doubled from 2 to 4%. And so I don't know about you, but every time I like read the numbers and the statistics, I get a little bit discouraged. Like, is this kind of exponential growth even possible? Because those aren't just numbers. Each of those numbers represents real people. These are sons and daughters. These are brothers and sisters. These are best friends that maybe you grew up with. These are, these are students that I discipled when I was a youth pastor years ago. So there's a story attached to every single soul represented by those statistics. So is this, is this kind of vision even possible to accomplish? Well, it's really important that we look at the book of Acts like we did in, the, in week one of this teaching series. It happened once, at least. You can trace through the book of Acts this exponential growth, and I want to kind of span that out over the first three centuries of the early church. The early church, day one, on Pentecost, 33 AD, it's 3,000 believers, and sociologists estimate that that number grew to 33 million by the year 350 A.D. 
That's what you call exponential growth. The church grew by about 40% per decade. It went from making up 0.000015% of the population to over half of the Roman Empire became a follower of Jesus by 350 AD. And what's astounding about that is 100% of that growth was new conversion growth. This wasn't people just swapping churches, and that's how the church grew. These were, uh, these were souls won to the kingdom of heaven. And so it happened back in the day, but that was a long time ago, right? Sometimes we can kind of feel that way. Like, well, yeah, I mean, that used to happen back in, like, Bible times, but what about today? And actually, we can look around at some parts of the world today, and the kingdom of heaven is growing like wildfire, I want to show you just one missions organization. I had an opportunity to attend uh, a pastor's training, and it was led by uh, the president of New Generations. New Generations goes into unreached parts of the world, and they start what's called disciple-making movements. And there's a few metrics they use to define exactly what a disciple-making movement is. But essentially, you have a group of people who make disciples to at least the fourth generation. Do you know what that means? It means that this person makes a disciple, that disciple makes a disciple, who makes a disciple, and then guess what? One more time at least. And you have to have at least four spiritual generations represented for it to qualify as a disciple-making movement. Well, they started in 2005, and they, this is some of the results they've seen eight, for 18 years of ministry. 195 disciple-making movements, and that number might not be that impressive, but when you consider it actually resulted in 117,000 churches planted and 2,426,000 new believers in Jesus Christ. Can we celebrate the work that's happening around the world? And that's just one missions organization. I want to show you a few of their other charts. You can see this represented by region. One thing that you'll notice is they, they work primarily in Africa and Asia. And you can see in that bottom left-hand chart how the first three years, the number of new churches might have seemed like it was growing a little bit incrementally. But isn't that how exponential growth works? That you actually focus on getting it right, and you may not see a ton of fruit immediately, but given enough time, if there's disciples who make disciples who make disciples, eventually you become part of what's called a movement for the kingdom of heaven. And this is what I'm praying that we would be able to be a part of at Hill City Church. Something that's so much greater than our own selves. Harry Brown, the president of New Generations, in that pastor's training, set a line that has stuck with me, and I think it's more accurate to say this line has haunted me. He said, there is yet to be a single disciple-making movement in North America. By their metrics of, of, of like this many generations and this many people and it's reproducing on its own apart from the work that they started, it's actually taking off on its own. And uh, he had a, a bunch of pastors who lead churches on the Zoom call and we're all like, what? You know, like what are we doing? And he said, now, now, don't, now don't, don't get me wrong, he said the North American church is really good at growing fruit, but the kind of fruit that we grow is seedless grapes. And this is, a, this is a metaphor I want to run with today, okay? Seedless grapes, where the fruit is real, but it doesn't reproduce. Because what happens if you take this grape and you pop it in the ground? It stays there. 
nothing happens because it doesn't actually have the seed that it needs to reproduce. So here's what we're talking about today. How are we going to get the seeds back in these grapes, church? That's what we're going to talk about. Are you interested in that? We're going to be in John 15. If you want to turn in your Bibles to John 15, we'll be looking at a teaching from Jesus. While you turn there, I just want to kind of define our terms a little bit and ask the question, what are we talking about today? We're talking about fruit. I want to show you a chart. If you've been around Hill City for a while, maybe you've seen this chart before. Anyone seen this chart before? I've shown this chart, I don't know, 38 times, 52 times, a lot of times. It's my favorite chart. I made this chart. That's one of the reasons it's my favorite charts. And if it's brand new to you, take a picture of this or draw it or something. This is very, very important for our church. Uh, Every single human being can fit into one of five different stages of discipleship. Pre-faith is someone who doesn't yet have a faith in Jesus. New to the faith, someone who recently became a follower of Christ. Young in the faith, someone who's, maybe they've been around for a little while, but they still have a long ways to to go and and a lot of growth areas. Someone who's growing, they're showing signs of faith. They're maybe even beginning to serve, volunteer at church, give sacrificially, kind of do the, the typical things that we look at like the varsity Christians do. That's someone who's growing in the faith. But then there's actually another stage called stage five, mature in the faith, that person begins not just to grow themselves, but they begin to help someone else grow, to reproduce, to make more disciples. And I want to be really clear about this. So we've over, I've overlaid you know, the great commission to make disciples that Christ gives us. That involves three things. Deliverance, somebody needs to be delivered from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. And, and the, the thing that Jesus says to do for that person Baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Then there's development, which is when Jesus says, teach them to obey everything that I've commanded you. And then there's this idea of deployment where you actually commission that person to go and to make more disciples. You with me? This should be reviewed to you if you've been here for more than a few months, okay? And uh, I want to be really clear about this. The kind of fruit we're talking about today is both the fruit of discipleship sometimes also called spiritual formation, as well as the fruit of disciple-making, which is the fruit of mission. You see that? Let me, let me clarify it a little bit more. In Galatians chapter 5, verses 22 and 23, this is a very clear description of what we call discipleship, your own spiritual growth. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Now that's not an exhaustive list of the kind of fruit that God will grow in you, because God grows other things. The fruit of generosity, the fruit of humility, the fruit of victory over sin and temptation. Amen? But those are all what we would call personal growth, personal spiritual formation. And that's typically what we mean when we talk about discipleship. I would say, and I just want to encourage you, our church is not like, not like we've got it dialed in, but our church has great strengths in a discipleship culture. I see a lot of this in our church. If you're a part of our church, I see this in you, okay? Can you be encouraged with that for a moment? And yet... This fruit also involves not just discipleship, but disciple-making. Romans chapter 1, verses, uh, verse 13, where Paul, the apostle, says, I have often intended to come to you, to the church in Rome, but thus far have been prevented in order that I might reap some harvest among you. Now, it's evident from the text. He's not saying, I want to come visit the church in Rome so that I can grow spiritual fruit myself. What's he talking about? He's like, I want to come to Rome so I can get a part, become a part of that, the fruit that's happening over there. 
so that I can contribute, so I can be on mission, so I can make disciples, so I can not grow myself, but help other people grow. I want to show you this chart again. Here, I'm going to try, I'm, again, this is kind of big picture stuff. I'm like diagnosing our ecclesiological problem in the North American church, okay? This is like big picture stuff. I want to show this chart once again, though. Most believers in the American church, they have like a dotted line between stage four and stage five where their journey ends. And it's like, well, for me, yeah, I'm going to grow to stage four. I want to be growing. Like that's kind of my finish line. But either stage five doesn't exist in most people's minds or at least it doesn't exist in a personal ownership kind of way that I will ever get to the point where I myself make disciples. And I'm not just saying this anecdotally, because I have met many, many people who, who think this way, but Barna did research just a couple of years ago, and they found uh, that they asked American Christians this question. You ready for the question? Is discipling others something that is expected of you? And 70% of American Christians answered no. That explains why we have seedless grapes is because about three quarters of the american church doesn't even register that getting to stage five is something that god will invite them into or expect of them and i would even go one step further command them to do and i just want to make this really really clear for us as a church okay jesus expects disciples to make disciples agree I hope that if somebody, if Barna came in and did a survey of Hill City Church, 100% of us would agree with that statement, that Jesus expects disciples to make disciples. You want to learn how, church? Three people want to learn how. <laughs> Open your Bibles, John 15. I'm not going to go through verse by verse today. We're going to read through the whole passage. We've got a lot of content to go through today. And I'm going to read through the whole passage and make some uh, insights here. So John chapter 15, starting in verse 1. Try to read along with me here. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear, everyone say it, more fruit. What is Jesus concerned with? He wants more fruit. That's the, that's the point of this passage here. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. How much fruit does Christ want? As much as he can get. For apart from me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch that withers, and the branches are gathered and thrown into the fire and burned. This should wake us up a little bit. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified. Have you ever asked the question, what really glorifies God? That you bear, everyone say it, much fruit. You getting the point? And so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. I want to give you five takeaways about fruit, okay? Number one, fruit comes from connection. A branch has to actually be connected in order for it to grow fruit. Make sense? 
And Jesus says that. He says, that's how we bear fruit, both personal spiritual formation, the fruit of Christ-like character, as well as the fruit of multiplication, of mission. It actually comes from not trying harder. It comes from connecting more with Christ Jesus. And the opposite is also true. He says, apart from me, you can do nothing. So from today, if you feel like, I just need to try harder on my own strength, on my own wisdom, on my own power, it's not going to work. We have to be deeply connected, living our lives in deep attachment to Jesus Christ, which means this for you. If you're not yet a follower of Jesus, would you come to Christ? Would you come to Christ? The, the, the price of forgiveness and mercy and grace and redemption has been paid for you by Jesus being the perfect living son of God, dying on the cross for your sins and raising back to life in victory three days later. You can be grafted into that vine today. Would you ask God today in a prayer to forgive your sins and lead your life? Come to Christ. And for you, if you've already come to Christ, would you cling to Christ? I think sometimes we get a little bit casual with our attachment to Jesus where we kind of start feeling like, well, I don't know if I really need him as much anymore. You know, I've been to church for a lot of years. And we've got we've to be a church that continues to cling to Christ. That's the first takeaway. Fruit comes from connection. Number two, fruit requires pruning. Somebody say requires. He prunes that it may bear more fruit. The Holy Spirit, who lives inside of all believers, sanctifies us by his word and his truth, which means this. If there's any dead branches in your life, you want to know what a dead branch means? It means sin. If there's any sin in your life, God wants to convict you of that sin so you would repent and confess those things. Because guess what? Not only is it bad and it's destroying your own relationships, your own relationship with God, and even your own relationship to your own soul, but it's preventing you from bearing fruit. And so he wants to cut those things out. But not only does God want to prune sin out of our lives, even I would say a master gardener not only can identify, that's a dead branch, cut it off. Because I could do that, right? I'm not like great at gardening, and I know like that's a dead branch, cut it off. But a good gardener, a master gardener is going to look at a branch that looks like it's okay and say, that could be better. That could be more fruitful. And so what God wants to do is even take distractions things that are preventing you from seeking his kingdom first, the amount of time you spend on entertainment, on your phone, the amount of, th- even like little things, maybe they're not quite idols, but they're just major distractions of your life, and he wants to prune you of those things. Number three, fruit, uh, fruit proves discipleship. Somebody say, prove it. How do you know you're a disciple? Prove it. Consistently, Christ Jesus gives the fruit in your life as evidence of true discipleship. He says this in Matthew chapter 7, the Sermon on the Mount, you will recognize them by their fruits. And if you have a fruit problem, then you need to go back to the first two things we looked at. Do you have a connection problem? Are you connected? Are you in the vine? Or do you have a pruning problem? Are there things that God wants to cut out of your life? Because fruit ultimately proves discipleship, so much so that he says branches that, are, that have never borne any fruit will be cut off and thrown into the fire. Very sobering words from the mouth of Christ. Number four, fruit glorifies God. Westminster Catechism asks the question, what is the chief end of man? It's to glorify God and enjoy him forever. But what exactly does it mean to glorify God? Jesus gives us a definition. By this, my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit. 
that we live fruitful lives. And there's really two essences of this. The first one is that you don't get the glory when you bear fruit because guess what? Apart from Christ, you can do nothing. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, Paul writes that God causes the growth. So we don't bear fruit to brag and to boast to one another and look how fruitful I am, look at how many people I baptize or whatever because God ultimately gets the credit. He gets the praise. He gets the glory. It's actually his fruit growing in your life. Make sense? Does that make sense? But then the other thing is the more people who surrender their lives to Jesus, the more glory God gets which also makes sense. The bigger God's kingdom is, the more people surrender their lives to him, the more people worship him and serve him in their lives. And so if we want God to receive more glory, we better go out and share the gospel with more people. It's just a simple math equation. And then number five is that fruit leads to joy. It's the question that everyone's asking, people inside the church and outside the church. What is the good life? What is a life that fills me with the most joy? Life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Everyone's pursuing something, but ultimately, most people are pursuing happiness. And I'm just here to tell you that this is the secret sauce to a life of abundant joy. It's not about self-actualization. It's not about the bucket list. It's not about the vacations. It's not about building your own empire. It's about joining Jesus and growing his kingdom. Amen? And that, I can just tell you, there is no greater joy than partnering with Jesus in what he has for your life to make a difference for God's kingdom. So I don't know about you, but I am motivated after reading John 15 to ask the question, how do we get some seeds back in this fruit? How can we be a part of a movement that is bigger than ourselves? How can we give God more glory? And let's be honest, how can we experience some more joy? Because this is the life that Christ Jesus has for us. I want to give you four shifts for us to make, if you like taking notes, okay? Shift number one is a shift from programs to people. Now, don't hear me say that we're going to shut down our church programs, because you did it. You're here. You're at a church program right now, and uh, pr- church programs are great, but as we see in, a, in North America, we have a program-heavy discipleship strategy, and I'm just here to say it, historically, in the last few decades, it hasn't exactly been working, at least not fully or completely. Every system is perfectly designed to get the results that it gets, and we are get, in the North American discipleship system, we are in, in our heavy reliance on church programs to be the end all and be all of making disciples. We're getting fruit, but that fruit is not reproducing because the fruit is dependent on the program to make more disciples. Are you with me? All right, I want to show you a chart. This will help. <laughs> Seen that before? Okay. Very important chart. Church programs, and by church programs, I'm talking about church services. I'm talking about youth group. I'm talking about even small groups. I'm talking about classes. I'm talking about church programs are especially designed for stages. Oh, can we get that chart again? We'll just leave it up for the rest of the sermon. No, I'm just kidding. Especially designed for stages two, three, and four on the discipleship process. Because what am I doing right now? I am teaching. And church programs are excellent at teaching, excellent at developing. They're excellent at, at, you know, getting into God's word. And that's, small groups are really good at that too. What's the insight that you took away from your small group that way? Does that make sense? Even much of our Bible time is like, here's the takeaway that I got from reading God's word. And here's my journal. And that's, is that a bad thing? 
I hope you don't hear me think, saying it's a bad thing, because I want more of that as well. That's good fruit. However, there's two, other, there's two other stages that church programs aren't, I would say, it's not that they never reach, but they're not designed to reach. And that's somebody who is not yet a follower of Jesus, on the one hand, because we are banking on the fact that someone who's not a follower of Jesus ha- happens to come here on a Sunday or, or show up to one of our programs. And I'm pretty sure when Jesus gave the Great Commission, he didn't say, stay and make disciples of all nations. What did he say? He said, go. go. So what about, I mean, we, we do church services, and these are about an hour services. What about the under, other 167 hours each week? Are we willing to go and take the gospel? Because if we're only doing one out of 167 hours of going with the gospel, then that's a recipe for disaster. I mean, you might have here and there people happen to you know, be open or they happen to be seeking, but what about that neighbor who never will set foot in one of our church services? How will they hear the gospel, right? And so that's, that's going to involve personal evangelism, personal sharing of the gospel. And then there's stage five, which, I mean, church services are really good at getting people to, like, serve in church programs or give for, you know, the mission and the ministry of the church. But what about the idea of commissioning people to go out into the world and live on mission? That takes personal, relational discipleship. Alice Matagora, she, she wrote a book called How to Save the World. It's one of my favorite books. It's a handbook on disciple making. We have it in our resource area. She writes this, we can't speed up our own spiritual growth and transformation, much less someone else's. No program or event can replace time and relational investment in another person. And the reality is we're in a situation because for the past few decades, the North American church has basically said, if we just run better church services, then we'll get a lot of disciples who live on mission. And I'm just here to say, there's some fruit of having great church services, but it's not the fruit of disciples who make disciples who make disciples. Because only 19% of American Christians have ever been discipled by another human being personally. And I'm here to just say that maybe that's many people in this room have never been discipled, have never been mentored, have never even been a part of a small group. And so maybe for you, your takeaway from today is before you go and start discipling someone else, or maybe in conjunction with discipling someone else, you go and find a mentor. You find uh, a group, and you join it, and you begin to experience what that's like. That's what it looks like. Again, we're not moving away from programs completely, but we're putting the emphasis on disciple-making back in the hands of the people. Are you ready for that? That's where we're going as a church, so I hope you're ready for that if you're a part of Hill City Church. Shift number two is a shift from adding services to multiplying churches, and we're kind of in that, in that tension right now as a church. What happens when your church actually grows? And you have to do something. What's your long-range plan for the growth? This is the number one question. This is the question I get asked the most frequently over the last, like, five, six months. It's like, so what are we doing? What's the plan? And, uh, you know, we added a service. We added an additional church service, night church on Thursday nights. If you never attend a night church, I would encourage you to check it out sometime. And, uh, but here's a myth, though, that sometimes I've heard church leaders believe the more church services you run, the more disciples you will make. Do you see the logic there? It kind of makes sense. Well, we just need to run services. We have three services right now. Well, what if we went to four services? What if we went to five services? What if we went to six and seven services? Here's the truth of what I've actually seen. 
the more church services you run, the less time you have to make disciples. Do you see that? Because what happens when I'm preaching 23 hours out of the week? I'm either writing sermons or I'm preaching sermons. And I don't have the time to personally disciple my own three daughters, let alone the life group that I lead. I'm like, sorry, I can't lead a life group. I can't disciple these people because I'm too busy running church programs. I can't disciple my own children because I'm, I'm too tired at the end of the day from running all the programs of the church. Your, your effectiveness at making disciples you, you might still reach a lot of people, in pre- and I'm not here to speak against any church model or church system. I'm here to tell you what things are about here at Hill City Church, okay? So do you hear me with that? I have a great deal of respect and love for all different models and methods and all different churches. I'm just here to clarify where are we going as a church. And uh, Tim Keller, and yet re- research has consistently found that new churches are much more effective at continuing to reproduce new believers. Tim Keller found this, a new church will reach six to eight times more new believers for Christ than an established church. And they measure an established church as saying a church that's been around for, for 10 years or more. Don't worry, we're not an established church yet. Still got a few years to go before we become an established church. But we, and we've kind of seen that as we planted our church in the first five years, we've seen like, whoa, we've actually reached a lot of new people. We just have to recognize that there is a tendency, the longer that your church has been around, the less you begin to reach out and the more things kind of turn inward. And I would say the best way to combat that is to continue to send people out on mission. Uh, they found uh, through these cross-denominational studies that about 60 to 80% of the growth in a brand new church plant comes from the unchurched, which is shockingly high. And in an established church, the growth is about 80 to 90% of transfers from other churches. And it's like, I just kind of feel like that. What are we doing? If we, like, I just feel like that's what are we doing if we're just like, yeah, we're still growing, but we just kind of shuffled. We like took all the shir- churches, put them in a cup like Yahtzee, poured them out, and you go here, and you go here, and you go here. It's like, that's not the mission that Jesus gave us. The mission he gave us is to go and make more disciples, new disciples for the gospel to go to the ends of the earth. Now, I say all of this knowing that very likely in the new year, we're probably going to have to add a fourth service, Okay very likely. But our, our long-range goal is not addition. Hill City Church gets bigger and bigger and bigger. Our long-range goal continues to be and shows up in many of my prayers, multiplication, planting churches. And we're going to keep praying into that. We're going to keep preparing that until God opens a door and we can uh, begin to multiply. Will you join me in praying for that in the new year? Add that to your prayer list, okay? Uh, shift number three is from experts to everyday Christians. Experts, people who have, I don't know, gone to Bible college or seminary, people who do that kind of thing for a living, people who stand on stage on a Sunday with a microphone. Who am I talking about? Talking about myself, people like me, right? And we have a shift from, again, I'm not saying like I need to quit my job. What I'm saying is I want to equip you to be able to be the ones who make more disciples, So if 70% of American Christians don't expect themselves to ever disciple someone else, who do they expect to do it? Just point at that person in the room. Who do they expect to do it? (laughs) It's me. They expect it to be me. That's like, what do we pay him for? Drink coffee and write sermons? And I was here to say, I wish. 
wouldn't that be nice? And uh, I did some, I did some uh, seedless grape research this week. That's what, that's what I really get paid for, is like really dive into these illustrations. Uh, I did some seedless grape research, and I was, my, my goal was to like, oh, this is going to be great, seedless grapes. It's, it's a great illustration, isn't it? And uh, I was like, I'm going to explain the process that they use to make seedless grapes. And I went online, and I was like, how do they make seedless grapes? You can do this later today. And uh, I was reading all this stuff, and I got about 40 minutes in, and I still don't understand it. <laughs> and maybe that's just me and my, like, intellect or whatever, but I was like, I feel like I'm a pretty sharp guy. And I was like, I don't know. I don't, like, there's a certain, like, it's kind of like cloning, but it's not quite the same. I don't understand it. But I did find this Canadian website, Science World, and this is what they said, okay? Without knowledgeable farmers, seedless plants could quickly become a thing of the, of the past. Here's my translation. Seedless grapes are dependent on experts who understand the process. And you take away the experts, you take away the fruit. That is a perfect description of the American church and why we have to stop centralizing discipleship and disciple-making as that's my job and you just get to come and watch me do my job. But this is why we all have to see everyday Christians have to say, take ownership, it's my job too. It's my job too. Everyone just say those words, it's my job. Ready? It is your job. It's your job. And uh, we, looked at this we looked at this last week. Uh, Pastor Jake shared this uh, quote from Tim Keller that Michael Green estimates about 80% of the evangelism done in the early church was done by everyday Christians. And you just look at the results, exponential growth when everyone is in the game. But am I supposed to disciple all the lost people in Boise? I don't know that many people, right? Or are we supposed to run a good enough program that everyone comes to that's going to do the work? No, we've got to be out in the world living out our faith. It's ordinary people multiplying disciples in their natural networks. And I'm here to let you in on a little secret as a self-proclaimed you know, expert pastor is I went to Bible college, I went to seminary, and they don't train you for disciple-making. They train you to have the professional skills you need to run church services and to, and, to, and to do the work of church ministry. Now, we need more people going into that line of work to, to go into that vaca- vocation as well because Bible college attendance has declined across, kind of across the landscape in America. So if God is leading you, calling you to that, there's a lot of uh, great value to the fact that I know some of these like theological words and exegesis and all this sort of stuff. But I'm just here to say the lessons I learned about disciple-making, I primarily learned by people discipling me. It wasn't in the classroom learning. It was at a coffee shop learning, actually being challenged to grow and people keeping me accountable and then saying, now next year, who are you going to do that with? That's, what I'm, that's the seed, by the way. The seed is just the fact of you expect it to reproduce on its own apart from you, to go beyond yourself. I want to give you a simple tool that perhaps just illustrates this idea of what it means for an everyday Christian to do the work of disciple-making. And this is used by new generations. It's also used by many different groups across the world. It's called a discovery Bible study. So they say, hey, we're going to go into a region. We're going to find out what's called a person of peace. That's a, a term used by Jesus when he sent his disciples out to go and like door-to-door, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Like that's what Jesus sent his disciples with, right? But he said, find a person of peace. And that's find a person who's, they have connections, they have relationships, but they're also somewhat open to the kingdom of heaven. 
right? Maybe they're not asking, but they're at least, when you ask them, like, would you be interested in, like, talking about Jesus or talking about spiritual things? They're like, sure. And here's what you do, a discovery Bible study. This is, the, this is kind of the tool, four questions to, to read any passage of Scripture with. Question one is, what does the passage say? So you read, like, John 15, 1 through 11, and then you just ask the question, so what are the things that you notice the passage said? Could you do this? Super simple. It's literally just like you can look back at the passage. It said the word abide a bunch of times. It says the word pruning, right? You, you, so you just, what does it say? The second question is, what does it mean? Now we've, now we've moved into what's called interpretation. So it's like, okay, well, what, is, what does the vine represent? Okay? What does pruning look like? And so you move to interpretation. And then number three is, what will I do? The person actually asks, well, what? So now that you understand it a little bit more, what is God leading you to? I think he's leading me to repent from this sin. I think he's leading me to be, you know, spend time in quiet time so I can abide in the vine, right? So it leads to application. And this is where most of our Bible studies end. And it's not bad. This is really good, actually, to be able to be like, and you leave and you have your takeaway. Like your, your personal Bible application, that's great. But there's one more question, and it's so simple and yet I think it's revolutionary. You know? it's, like, it's like so simple it just might work, okay? The fourth question is who will I tell? The person actually says that. Okay, so you've learned. You've read the passage. You've asked these questions. You're going to do something. Now who are you going to tell about the things that God is teaching you? And you ask that question to someone who's not yet even a follower of Jesus. You get the non-Christians evangelizing their friends before they're even a follower of Jesus. That happened, by the way, in John 4, the woman at the well. She's like, could this be the Christ? She doesn't even believe he's the Christ yet. She just knows there's something different about this Jesus guy. You've got to come meet him. That is expecting multiplication. And I'm just here to say, if we would begin to just expect the people that we pour into to be able to go and share it with their friends. Here's, Here's a discipleship vision if you're discipling your children. Would your children be able to reach their lost friends for Christ while they're at school? And they would get to baptize those kids one day. That's a vision, okay? Do you believe your kids are capable of that? Because I don't know about you, but I believe the gospel is the power of God for salvation for any who believe. And you equip that in the hands of even a five or a six-year-old, and you better believe a revival is, there's potential for revival in whatever places your kid goes. That's how we put seeds back in the grapes. Got it? You can do this today. We've got we've to talk about this fourth shift, and this is the uncomfortable one. We've got to shift from comfort to calling, because I think this is primarily what's kept the North American church where it is, because seedless grapes are just a better consuming experience, and isn't that what we're all about as Americans? The best consumer experience when I was uh, going to the store to find seedless grapes, I uh, was actually planning on getting seedless grapes and grapes with seeds. I don't know what you call those. I think they're just called grapes. <laughs> and the reason why, it should be normal. It should be normal. It's like, that's a grape, and this is a seedless grape. It's not called a seeded grape. It's just called a grape. It's what they're supposed to be. So I went to the store to find two, and I'd be like, can you tell the difference? I don't know. I had this whole thing in my mind. I could not find grapes with seeds. Because in my, in my seedless grape research, what I came across is 80% of the grape market is made up with seedless grapes in America because they're more convenient. It's a better consumer experience. 
And instead of just letting grapes produce naturally the good old-fashioned way, we've got the experts doing the work because those are the grapes that'll solve. And you don't ha- I'm not here to shame you if you eat seedless grapes, okay? <laughs> but we've all had that experience where you, I don't know, we're at like Trader Joe's or Whole Foods or somewhere where they actually sell grapes with seeds, and you accidentally bought them. Have you had this experience? I know you have. <laughs> You've had it. You're at home, and you're like, I'll have some of those grapes, and you're feeling all like, you know, like, oh, grapes are so, you know, such a luxury, and you, you pop one in your mouth, and it has a seed in it that you weren't expecting, and you spit it out in disgust. <laughs> Why does this grape have a seed in it, right? And here's the reality. We just have to get used to this, that what God is calling us to do, to live your life on mission for the sake of the gospel, always threatens your comfort. It will inevitably always threaten your comfort. This is a take up your cross, deny yourself, and follow me kind of calling that Jesus was a lot more upfront with when he called people to be his followers than, to be honest, than we often are. It will threaten your comfort. And yet, this is what I'm saying, there's no better joy. There's no better joy than to take a step out of the comfort zone into the unknown and to follow Jesus. And here's just a word of encouragement at the end that you're not on your own in this. Christ Jesus goes with you. Matthew 28, 20, right after the Great Commission, he gives this promise, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Has the end of the age come yet? No, so Jesus is still with us. He's poured out his presence in our lives by the Holy Spirit. And I think it's significant that Christ Jesus gives this incredible calling, this lifelong calling, go, make disciples of all nations, baptize them, teach them. And as you do that, I will be with you always to the end of the age. And I know a lot of people are maybe hungry for more of God's presence. Like, what's the worship song I need to put on to experience more of God's presence? Or what's the devotional book I need to read? Or the exact, you know, what's the, what are like the good Bible verses I need to read in order to experience more of God's presence? Like, we're kind of after that right now. Like, I've, I noticed that. And I'm here to tell you, you want to experience more of God's presence in your life? Join him in his mission to seek and to save the lost. You want to walk by the Holy Spirit? I'll tell you where the Holy Spirit's going. He's going to the lost. He's going to your neighbors. He's going to your family members who don't know Christ yet. And there is no place that I've experienced Christ Jesus more than I'm partnering with him in his mission so that all nations will believe that Jesus Christ is the son of the living God. Amen, church? This is where we're going. Come on. This is where we're going. How did I say we were going to end? You ready for it? Some of you are like, when is this going to end? One question. (laughs) Who will you disciple? As you're thinking, and maybe if you're writing this down, put it in the first person. Who will I disciple? This This is the one question we all must be asking ourselves because Jesus expects disciples to make more disciples. Who will you disciple? As you're thinking about New Year's resolutions, maybe you're thinking about finances, fitness goals. I always think about fitness goals, by the way. Uh, think about fitness goals, like housing, like what are housing projects, you know, decorations, what are my career goals? This has to be like number one on the list for followers of Jesus every year. Who are you going to disciple this year? And it's not like, because sometimes we have a generic, well, everybody, the whole earth, it's like, okay, a little more specific. <laughs> because Jesus had 12 disciples. And he specifically spent time with three of that 12. 
And so for me, if I'm like, well, I'm going to disciple literally everyone, it's like, do you think you're better than Jesus? Okay, you got it. <laughs> Who will you disciple? Start with, like, pray for at least, like, one name, one face, one person, maybe two, maybe three, and just pray through this. If, I'm just here to tell you, if you're, if you're a parent and you have kids sleeping in your household, write their names down. And be, in, be as intentional as possible until they leave your house to disciple those kids in the wisdom and the instruction of the Lord. If we just got that right, we would see revival in the next generation. If we just focus that. For you, if you have unique, close relationships, close friends with unchurched people, you maybe don't even realize how unique that is with neighbors who are lost, friends who are lost, coworkers, even spouses, family members who are lost. And you're like, well, I don't know. They're, they seem pretty closed. They, I don't know if they'll be open to like doing a Bible study with me, like discovery. You don't have to call it a discovery Bible study, okay? Or whatever, whatever God ends up leading you to. But here, they use that discovery Bible study with witch doctors. And they get their witch doctors to tell their witch doctor friends about Jesus. And it's like, your neighbor might be a little bit closed off to religion, but are they a witch doctor? <laughs> if they are... And maybe it's, that lost, it's a lost person for you, though. Maybe for you, because disciple-making is not only like brand-new people. It's like helping other people grow towards maturity in Christ. And for you, you just like, I've been, I've been going to church for decades. I've been following Jesus for years. And for you, what it might actually look like is taking some of the many, many young people that God is bringing to our church. Can we celebrate that? Oh, my goodness. God is bringing so many young people to our church. And we've got people, like, this is a weird uh, thing that's happened where we, we, we end up baptizing a lot of people, like, the week they get married. Like, we'll officiate a wedding, but they'll get back. They're like, oh, yeah, I've never been baptized. Like, two covenants, one week, boom, done. And, uh, but now you got people, like, try, like, I don't know, a 19 or 20-year-old trying to figure out how to be married and how to follow Jesus for, like, the very first time. Guess what those people need? They need a disciple maker who's been married for decades who's been, been with it, who's stuck with it through thick and thin to actually help them grow to maturity and, and answer those really difficult questions. So I'm not here to tell you who that person is. I want you to pray through that question. Who will you disciple? But I'm here to tell you something very, very clear. If you are a disciple of Jesus Christ, it's somebody. It's somebody. This next year, 12 months, would you intentionally pour into and invest in the life of someone else so that they grow to maturity in Christ because that is the kind of fruit that glorifies God and leads to abundant joy. Amen? We're going to have an opportunity before we sing this last song of worship to take the Lord's Supper. This is really a meal for followers of Jesus. And if you're not yet a follower of Jesus, I'd encourage you to just pray and process through what God might be speaking to you through the message today. And if you are a follower of Jesus and you didn't get the elements, just raise your hand and usher can get you those. This next song is called New Wine, and it's, it ties in so well with the passage we looked at today. It's really describing the winemaking process, which is really kind of a messy process. You take a bunch of grapes, you put them in a wine press. It's like the, in the ancient world, people take off their sandals. I hope they wash their feet first, and then they start squashing them. And it's like this crushing kind of process to make wine. And that can be a lot like what it looks like when God is growing a new thing in our lives. It can feel a lot like a crushing. It can feel a lot like a process. 
And yet, if we would be willing to enter into that process that the Holy Spirit wants to do with us, he's going to grow new things. He's going to do a beautiful work. And as we take the Lord's Supper, we remember first the place that Jesus went on our behalf. He was crushed for our afflictions. He's not inviting us to go to any place of discomfort that he himself has not gone before us. So reflect on the good news of the gospel. Take the elements. And when you're done in prayer and reflection, feel free to stand as we worship. Thanks for tuning in to the Hill City Church Podcast. You can find out more about our church at hillcityboise.org. Follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Hill City Boise. We hope this teaching has encouraged you and helps you follow Jesus with everything.